Thank you, Talian and Kim, for your hospitality to us. We're really, really happy to be here. I uh, was asked by Talian today over lunch, how does it feel to have just finished 33 years in the pastorate? Because I am now, what, five days out of that role for the first time in 33 years. And um, I had an answer for him, but um, I want to tell you how I feel and make it a bridge into our, our topic tonight. Um, number one, as I have for the last couple of years of transition, I feel amazed and thankful for how God has shepherded this process of concluding that 33-year ministry. So be praised, Lord Jesus, at your kindness to us as a church. Number two, I said over lunch that I've been too busy to feel anything. Um, got the Gospel Coalition coming up and a talk at RTS after that and this talk, and so I've just been blitzing on new preparations and uh, haven't hardly come up for any leisurely air, and it, it's, it's leisure where you tend to start feeling things instead of hurriedness. And so I'm expecting something to click in soon, but it hasn't happened yet. So you can pray about that. Number three, um, I said to my wife when I came down midway through one of my talk preparations for next week, um, when I pause in the middle of this pressured preparation, it feels different because a significant pressure has been lifted. It felt so different to just have one pressure. Because when you're a pastor, when you're pressing to do one thing, like this, say, you know right here is Sunday's coming, and the, and the elder meeting is coming, and the crises never go away, and, 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 and that's been there for 33 years, operating under that kind of relentless pressure, and it's gone. And I thought, I just have three messages to prepare for next week, <laughs> the Gospel Coalition, but there's no weekend coming, which felt amazing and happy. Not that I didn't like to preach, right? And lastly, um, I'm excited to talk to you because you're the first group I've ever spoken to in 33 years, not as a pastor. And what I want to talk to you about is how I tried to live those years. So what, what, how do you try to live as a pastor, Which, that is, as a human being? as we were singing the song about 10,000 years and he's going to come and it is still well with my soul. That had a very special meaning for me at that moment. It is still well with my soul. I thought, I just want to be a humble, holy man ready to meet Jesus if, if this is the week. And I think holiness of life is a very high priority for God and the life that glorifies him, and how you pursue it makes all the difference in whether you make or break your own soul or, or whether you honor him or not. And that's what living by faith in future grace is meant to tackle. How do you live under pressure? How do you live a life 
battling sin successfully, and I've been thinking about it a long time. I think I wrote the book Future Grace in 95 or so. So I've been at it a while, and I want to talk to you about it. Here's where we're going to go. Um, this evening will be mainly foundation. Foundations are always full of implications, and so it won't feel theoretical, I promise you. And then tomorrow it will be all application. And by application, I mean taking the foundations that we've put in place tonight, and how then does that way of approaching life produce love? How does it overcome the sins of anxiety? Anxiety about uselessness, weakness, decision-making, afflictions, aging, not having guidance, dying, the sin of covetousness, the sin of lust, the sin of bitterness and unforgiveness, and the sin of impatience. That's what I'm attempting to tackle tomorrow, to take, take these foundations and then get in the nitty-gritty of everyday temptations and how do we sever the powerful root of sin? Oh, sin is powerful. It's so powerful. You don't have a chance against sin on your own. You will always fall without power from another source. And so it's all about appropriating that power, and that's what living by faith in future grace is intended to address. Let me give you right off my front burner from an hour or so ago. So now how do you, how do you, John Piper, get ready to do a seminar so that you do it by faith in future grace? Okay. Am I now doing this seminar? That is, is my soul acting in faith in future grace? Now, Part of what I do to get myself ready is I go looking for a promise of future grace. By that I mean about a four-hour long grace. And if not a promise of it, an illustration of it that's intended to be for me. And the Lord, I believe, led me an hour and a half ago in the hotel room to Colossians, not for the first time. I was looking in Colossians for it because I knew I'd been reading my devotions, just finished Colossians two days ago, and I knew I had enjoyed Colossians, and so I reminded myself of these words. This is Colossians 1, 29 and 28. Um, Him we proclaim, warning every man and teaching every man that we might present every man mature in Christ. For this I toil, I toil. Striving agonizomenos, agonizo, agonai. You, you hear the word in the Greek and the English. Striving, here's the Greek. I wrote it in Greek because I really, really want to get this right. Agonizomenos kata ten ergayan autu 
tain energumenen enemoi and duname. You don't know what I just said. <laughs> so I'll, I'll translate it for you. For this I toil, this is Paul's testimony to me. For this I toil, that is to present you perfect. You're here tonight for me to do a little bit in your life of what Paul tried to do for everybody he met. Warn, teach, present to Christ full, complete, perfect. That's what I'm after. For this I toil, agonizomenos, striving, katatein energaianatu, according to the inworking, tein energumenein, which is being worked in, enemoi, in me, enduname, by power. That's just amazing. Those words are amazing to me, stunning to me. So let's make it a little more smooth. For this I toil, striving according to his energy, which he is energizing in me by power. Now, how do you appropriate that? So that's happening at this moment. No sham, no play, no artificiality, either supernatural or you're playing games. And my answer is, you trust him for it because it is an ever-arriving grace for the next 55 minutes or not. That's future grace. This is real. This is the way I've tried to live my life, every moment of my life, and of course I failed 10,000 times, and I want you to fail less. So I have some overheads, like 61 of them. <laughs> and we'll get through, Lord willing, about 29 of them this evening. And we will um, see what we can do tomorrow. So let's start with definitions. You wouldn't think you'd have to define the future. That part of time yet to be experienced. But the reason I define it is because I want you to know that when I speak of future grace, you shouldn't think of heaven first. That's part of it. You should think of the next five seconds of life that you are given. The next 10 minutes of faith that you have, because you might not have it in 10 minutes if God doesn't show up and keep you believing. I don't know how, what your doctrine of eternal security is. I think the saints are totally secure for one reason. God shows up every second of their lives. And if he decided not to, they'd become an unbeliever. Every moment, grace is arriving, sustaining, providing, helping. So just when you think future, think from now until eternity. And now, five seconds of that has become past grace. There's this reservoir of grace that's accumulating behind your life. You're walking into future grace, you've got a reservoir accumulating behind your life, and you look in both directions biblically all the time. 
because that reservoir has meaning for you. 33 years of God's faithfulness has meaning for me, big time. I'm not oblivious of those past graces. They are wonderfully empowering for my confidence in future grace, like, will I finish this talk? He has helped me many times. Why wouldn't he? Well, it might be time to die, <laughs> which would be fine. I've already made arrangements. They're having a special service for me in about 10 days. It's called a farewell service. <laughs> I, just, I told him on my last sermon, I said, you've already got my funeral planned, so if the Lord would just take me now in the next 10 days, you wouldn't have to plan anything else. Just do the service you were going to do. Second word to define is grace. God's omnipotent commitment to do only what is good for His unworthy people, bringing them into glorified conformity to Christ and all satisfying joy and fellowship with Him. That is, fulfilling all God's promises to them because of Christ. This includes the help arriving in the next 10 seconds, our inheritance in the resurrection arriving possibly centuries from now, and everlasting demonstrations of His kindness in Christ. Grace is not only God's willingness and readiness and accomplishment in forgiving you for all your sins, that's foundational, it is also His ever-present readiness, willingness, and activity to do everything you need. My God will supply all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. It is going to happen. Will you trust Him for it? That would be faith in future grace. Faith. Receiving Christ all the time, yes, at conversion, decisively, Receiving Christ, I'm welcoming him right now. Come, Lord Jesus, help me. This is a receiving. Receiving Christ as the supremely valuable treasure that he is and being satisfied with all that God promises to be for us in him. That's a very unusual definition of faith. And if you buy that, your life changes. And I'll try to show later the textual basis for it. But just understand, my understanding of saving faith is that it's a moment-by-moment -moment welcoming of Christ as your supreme treasure and a being satisfied in all that God is for you in Him. And if that happens moment-by-moment, -moment, powerful severing of the attractiveness of sin happens, and that's holiness or purity. Past grace, I've already mentioned that. Let's just keep going. All right. Defining just what do you mean by living by faith in future grace? Here's some biblical expressions of it. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Okay, there's a definition. Assurance of things hoped for. And I'm, I'm summing it up as all that God promises to be for you in Jesus. So their faith is given a very explicit future orientation. Faith has a past orientation. We look back and we believe what Jesus did. 
But if that's all you did and it had zero connection to the future, you wouldn't be a believer. Because what Jesus did was purchase a perfect future someday for you. And if you don't buy the purchase, what's the point of the price? You're just mocking him. Oh, I believe you. Forgiveness of all my sins. And you look to the future, bleak, bad, no help, no grace arriving. You don't believe in what he did. So, past is crucial, but future is also essential. By faith, Abraham obeyed. There it is. Do do you obey like that? By faith, Abraham obeyed. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out, for he was looking forward, because faith is the assurance of things hoped for, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So as he went, he didn't, he didn't say, I'm, I'm bold, I'm courageous, I'm walking into the unknown. He said, I don't know what's coming, but I know it's good, because it's a city God made for me, and I'm trusting my God. Here we go from Ur. That's what faith does. Faith is a very risk-taking thing. Because it trusts. 1 Peter 4.11 may be the text that I have used more often than any other text before I preach to help me do this. Whoever serves, let him do so as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So all of you are called to some service. Do you do it in the strength that God supplies? And what I've been trying to do for years is just figure out psychologically what that feels like. We can mouth these things till we're blue in the face. Serve in the strength that God supplies and not have a clue what what we're saying. If somebody said, tell me, did you just do that? When you taught that Sunday school class, when you worked in the nursery, did you just do that? How did you do that? What was that like? What did it feel like? I want so much of this stuff to be real for me. I hate nominalism. (laughs) I I hate words that have no real meaning in my life and your life. So that's what I've been working on all this time. That's what we're working on together in these two hours. Why does it matter? Because God says all our behavior, all our living, should make him look supremely glorious. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, that's pretty encompassing, do all to the glory of God. And there's another challenge. Everything you do, everything you do. And he picks out nitty-gritty things like eating and drinking, just so you know he means everything. Eat pizza, drink diet pop, and golf, and surf. Is that, people do that here? I, I've never surfed in my life except body surfing when I was 10. Everything you do, do it to the glory of God. I wrote an article for our church newsletter one time called How to Drink Orange Juice to the Glory of God. It's because the Bible says you're supposed to. Whether you drink, eat or drink. And, and really, I mean, if it says that, it ought to have some meaning. 
right? You should be able to say, when I drank my juice this morning, I did it to the glory of God. Well, how, how did you do that? How, what was that like? Describe that to me. Really. So that's what we're working on. Let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your fathers in heaven. So it matters. Good works matter. Eating and drinking in a certain way matters because they make God look good, and that's why we're on the planet. We will see in this seminar, Lord willing, that living by faith in future grace draws attention to the glory of God. So, in other words, I've just argued that your behavior is important because uh, it is intended to reflect the glory of God in the world, and now I'm arguing that a life lived by faith in future grace does that. And I just quoted this text, but let me finish it. I only quoted half of it. Whoever serves, let him do so as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And we stopped there. Now we keep going. In order that... In everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. We get the logic here. If you're going to serve somebody, and John, I mean, uh, Bob Dylan says you have to. If you're going to serve somebody, then, then you should be trusting in power coming down from heaven. Why? Because the giver gets the glory, right? Isn't that what it says? In order that in everything God may be glorified. Serve in His strength so that He can be glorified. So if you could find a way to lean on this ever-arriving power so that what you did was done in the strength of that ever-arriving power, God would be glorified through that. It says so. To him belongs glory and dominion forever. So there's a mystery here that I want so bad to live. been trying to teach my people to savor this mystery, live in this mystery, the mystery of living in the power of another so that the other gets the glory. Oh, don't you want to know what that is? Don't you want the, the miracle to be wrought in your life so that you could come to the end of your days and say, that, that's pretty much the way I lived. I, I failed a lot, but that's the way I, I lived. Still on the question, why does it matter? God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in Him and we will see that living by faith in future grace means being satisfied in God's future grace. So if you're satisfied in all that God promises to be for you in Jesus, and if my thesis that I've given my life to, God is most glorified in you when you're most satisfied in Him, then you will be glorifying God by being satisfied in all that He promises to be for you. Now look at Matthew 5. Blessed are you... Amazing statement now. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And they will increasingly do that in America for Christians who take biblical stands, as you know. Blessed are you when, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. Rejoice! And be glad, for great is your reward 
in heaven. So what's the key to being a happy person when you are being slandered? I'll tell you. I mean, Paul said in, in 2 Corinthians 12, picking up on this, he said, all the more gladly will I boast in insults. I hate to be insulted. I just hate it. <laughs> right? Who loves to be sneered at and called something you're not? You know you're not. And they say you are. And Paul and Jesus said, I'm going to rejoice when that happens. And the answer is given for your reward is great in heaven. And I would argue from 2 Corinthians 4, 17 that there's not just a um, temporal connection, like good things are coming on the other side of the slander in a hundred years, but rather there's a causal connection and that there's some correlation between your willingness to suffer in faith in that promise and that promise being bigger for you. This momentary affliction is working for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's working. It's somehow causing and connecting and making bigger. I am so glad the martyrs can count on some rewards in heaven bigger than mine. I've just been had such an easy life in America. And others have died and died for my Savior. They've been tortured to death. I want them to be blessed in a deep way. In fact, Jonathan Edwards argues that when the rewards in heaven are parceled out and some are more deep and big in their capacities for joy and others, these two things will work for each other's good. There'll be no envy. There'll be no covetousness. Your greater joy in heaven than mine will make mine bigger. But that's another talk, another seminar. I'm, uh, I've got to tackle this on Sunday up at the Gospel Coalition because they assigned me this text from 2 Corinthians where we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive what we have done in the body, whether good or evil. But close that parenthesis or you're going to get carried away and preach that sermon instead of, instead of this one. So you can all come up on Sunday if you want. Another reason why this matters is that practical holiness, that is the purifying effect of living by faith in future grace, is necessary for final salvation. Now, this is theologically a little sticky uh, because it causes people to worry about eternal security, causes people to worry about work salvation, and all kinds of, mm, I don't want to sure, I don't want to go there. That sounds way too conditional. So let me show you the text, and then if you want to say it a better way, happy for that. So I'm saying final salvation, not past salvation. You did not come into Christ by doing anything. <laughs> you received. You were dragged kicking and screaming. That's a paraphrase of John 6:44. Ekluo, drag. Everybody in this room who's a Christian was put in Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 1.30. From God are you in Christ Jesus. And you didn't crawl in, jump in, work in, climb in. You were very unattractive, 
very unattractive till the moment you were in. Now, having laid that foundation, what I'm saying here is whether you will be saved at the end depends, choose your words carefully here, depends on whether your life bears witness to that reality. Now, let me show you the texts. Strive, this is Hebrews 12, 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So there's a, there's a holiness, and you're to pursue it with all your might by faith and future grace, I'm arguing, because without it, you won't see him. Now, I said a minute ago, let me say it again, lest you think I'm not as Calvinistic as some people think I am, which I am. I'm a seven-point Calvinist. (laughs) No born-again child of God will be lost. Contingency does not equal uncertainty. Fancy language. That you must walk according to the gospel does not mean you will fail. God won't let you fail. He's faithful. But keep going. So also, James 2.17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So James would say, you're not saved if you have a life that is void of the pursuit of holiness by faith in future grace. Galatians 6, 8, and 9. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. There's not rewards here. This is life. This is eternal life. And you will inherit, you will receive eternal life. You will reap eternal life if you sow to the Spirit. If you sow to the flesh, you won't. Let us not grow weary in doing good. So that's what sowing involves. For in due season we will reap eternal life if we do not give up. Paul talked this way to believers. To believers. If you sow to the Spirit, you will receive eternal life. If you don't, you perish. I look out on my church, and I talk like that. And I assume that all the elect, regenerate, secure believers will take it to heart, and it will become God's means of keeping them. And those who are playing games and are not born again or are not elect, which only God knows, they'll blow that off. I can't. That's not, that, that shouldn't be addressed to us church members. 1 John 2, 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. I still don't know how John could get it more clear. I know him, and there's no evidence that by faith in future grace you are laying hold on the commandments in obedience all too imperfectly, I know, at age 67. In fact, I would say this. All my obedience 
needs cleansing. Zero implications of perfectionism here, right? All my faith in future grace needs the blood of Jesus to cover its imperfections. Nevertheless, that does not nullify these texts that say it's also real obedience by the power of the Spirit, and it's essential. 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. That's how you know you're born again. That's how you know you're not dead. Whoever does not love hasn't been born again, abides in death. Now, here's a problem that is raised by all those texts. If we are justified once for all by grace through faith apart from works, at the point of true conversion, then how can our final salvation be conditional upon a transformed life of holiness? Let me just lay, lay out those ifs. They really are real. Romans 3.28, we hold that one is justified, and I would add once for all, counted righteous in Christ Jesus, viewed as perfect in Christ Jesus, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So you didn't do anything to get yourself justified. If you're justified, it was by faith alone. The reason Martin Luther added the word alone when he exposited this text is because apart from works of the law implies alone. It's not an overstatement. There isn't anything you can add to faith as the instrument of your union with Christ where you are counted righteous. Nothing. Therefore, Romans 5.1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how, is, how are we to think about the relationship between that act of justification and this whole air of sanctification or purity of life, the holiness of life that I've argued is essential for final salvation. How, how did the Westminster Confession say it? Let's read this. Is this true? And I'm going to argue we can go behind it and see some more. Those whom God effectually calleth, he also freely justifieth, not by infusing, that's Roman Catholicism, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins, by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them, that's Roman Catholicism, or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone. Faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ, and we could say alone, and His righteousness is the alone instrument of justification. Amen and amen with glorious joy. Yet, that faith that receives and welcomes and rests is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces and is not dead faith, but worketh by love. A quote from Galatians 5, 6. That's the Westminster Standards, and it is absolutely right.
biblical. We believe these things because the Bible teaches them. Now, my question is, this is what drove me, goodness, 30 years ago, and then finally got into the book Future Grace. What I wanted to know was, why is that the case? Why, let's go back, why is this faith ever accompanied with all other saving graces and is not dead but worketh. Why? Because if there's any, any way I participate in that, I need to know how. Because that's the sign and seal of my reality. And I want to be real. Why? Here's my question. Why does practical holiness, that is love, works by love, inevitably, which it says, accompany, all right, we all agree with accompany, justifying faith. Here's my answer, which this whole seminar is designed to justify and then illustrate. Faith itself is the agent of the works. We'll get to the Holy Spirit shortly. Faith itself is the agent of the works. In other words, I'm arguing a company may just imply to you, here's faith going along here, and here's uh, renewed life and new good works going along here, and they just, they just run on parallel tracks. And I'm saying, oh, no, 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 no. Poo, 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 poo. Faith is, is jumping over here and doing this. Faith, it works by love. They're not just accompanying each other. They do not merely accompany faith. They come through or by faith. Faith is the agent that produces the works, and it does so necessarily. I want to know why. Thus, the works are evidence of true faith and are, mean, are not means of our salvation the way faith is. They are the evidence that faith is real and thus are necessary for final salvation, but they are not the ground of our salvation the way the death and righteousness of Christ are nor are our works the means of our salvation the way faith is. Christ is in a unique grounding position. Faith is in a unique instrumentality in putting us in Christ. And after both of those, Christ laying this foundation that cannot be replaced, faith doing its absolute unique work of uniting me to Christ by trusting Him alone and all He's done. Now, out of that newness of life come these works which are evidentiary in the court of heaven at the last day. I think I've got an illustration here. Yeah, okay. So this has helped me. I don't know if it helps you. These two prostitutes that came to, to the king, King Solomon. Um, first, be assured that the judgment will be according to works. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. You're taking deep breaths. Whoa, whoa, whoa. It just doesn't sound like justification by faith. It is. 
because these works are evidences of the faith that unites us to Christ, who is alone our justifying ground. Now, why does this little story about these two prostitutes help? So here they, they, they both had babies, right? You remember this story from 1 Kings 3. And one of them rolls over on her baby and kills it during the night. She sees that the baby is dead. She takes the dead baby and puts it in the arms of the other prostitute and takes her live baby and goes back to, to bed. And when they get up in the morning, the mother of the live baby, who's got the dead baby in her arms, is terrified, looks down, cries, and then notices, this is not my baby. That's my baby. It's, oh, no, it's not your baby. This is my baby. And who's going to settle that issue? I mean, how in the world could you settle that issue? That's the kind of stuff pastors face all the time. Imponderable situations of, I don't know what to do now. Well, Solomon was given a, a cut-the-baby-in-half kind of wisdom. That's what we call it at my church. We need a cut-the-baby-in-half wisdom at this moment. And he said, okay, I don't know who's the mother here, but let's just cut the baby in half and give half to each one. And like an absolute idiot, this mother, who was not the mother, said, that's a good idea. <laughs> but, but God sometimes causes us a, a wise word to make people become irrational, so they expose themselves. So she says, that's a great idea. And the true mother says, she can have the baby. Don't cut my baby in half. And Solomon takes the baby and says, I know who the mother is. Now, at that moment, the, the action of the, good, of the true mother, don't cut my baby in half, did not make her a mother. Just showed she's the mother. That's the way the judgment is going to work. None of your behavior makes you a Christian. None of your good deeds makes you born again. None of your good deeds puts you into a right standing with God. This church believes in the gospel. Nobody works his way into Christ. Rather, at the judgment day, when works are assessed, they will be assessed for one reason. Do they show that you're the mother that is born of God? And here's another illustration that I find really helps. The thief on the cross will be judged according to his works. Because the Bible says we all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and will be judged uh, according to our works. And the works will either be witnessing of our reality or not. And we might say, well, this man's lived, let's just pick an age. Let's say he's 40 years old. He's lived 39.999 um, years of his life sinning. That's all he's done is sin, stealing and ripping people off, and he deserves to be crucified. He said so. And in the last hour, he watches Jesus, Father, forgive them and take care of my mom. And, and God saves him. God saves him watching Jesus. And he looks over at Jesus and he says, have mercy upon me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. And Jesus recognizes his life, faith. And he says, today, you'll be in paradise. That's an awesome statement. 
<laughs> Today you'll leave me in paradise. Okay, so now he's at the judgment. He's going to be judged by his works. And God opens his filing cabinet of works. This is a very deep, long group of folders of sin. And there's this tiny little thin folder at the back with about three good works in it. He treated Jesus with kindness. He scolded his fellow thief and said, what are you mocking this man for? We deserve to be here, and he doesn't. And what God will do is take all those files of sin, and he'll throw them in the garbage and cover them with the blood of Jesus, and he'll pull out this folder, which has one or two good works, and he'll put them on the table in the courtroom, and he said, sufficient evidence that he was new and in me, period. So that, I don't want you to get the, I don't want you to have a kind of quantitative view of good works. You're like, we've got a scale going on here, and I'm piling up some, some scale here, and then, oh, but I blew it yesterday, and so the scale's out of whack today. It's not like that. Real, genuine fruit of faith are real, and they show reality. And they will be laid on the table to the glory of God's grace, and therefore we will be judged according to and not on the basis of our works. How then does faith do this great work of sanctification? Faith severs the root. This is my summary answer, and then we're going to look at text. Faith severs the root of sin. Sin has power by promising a better tomorrow, or at least a better this evening. Sexual sin is especially short-lived. The promises of sexual sin are very uh, powerful and irrational because they promise such irrationally short-lived pleasure and huge trouble beyond. But we believe that lie, we believe it, and that's why we do what we do. True faith is of such a nature that it severs the root of sin by embracing a better future and providing a deeper satisfaction. The future grace of God is better, a better future. And faith in future grace is that deeper satisfaction in that future. When you live by faith in future grace, the power of sin is broken by the power of a superior satisfaction in all that God promises to be for us in Christ. So, let me say it again, my own words here. Nobody sins out of duty, right? Nobody gets up in the morning and says, I don't want to sin today, but I will because I should. <laughs> Nobody. We only sin because we want to do what sin is telling us will make us happy. 
So it's tax reporting time. I just filled up my taxes, finished filling them out. Sunday night, I've got unbelievably good ways to cheat the government because I get honorariums and uh, don't keep any of them, but every now and then uh, there are incomes that come that the government wouldn't know about. So sin says to me, no, you've never been audited. Your, your record is so clean. You pay so much tax that no, just $100 here and there is just not going to make a difference. Why would, it, why, would, why would sin talk to me that way? He thinks I'm an idiot. He thinks I don't have a superior satisfaction than what $100, I mean, what's 10% of $100? Get out of here. Be gone, Satan. Be gone, liar. You're a liar, sin. Now, how can I say that? Why would, where does that come from? It comes from a superior satisfaction in God. I fight fire with fire. Jonathan Edwards taught me to do this. C.S. Lewis taught me to do this. Dan Fuller taught me to do this. The Bible taught me to do this. I fight fire with fire, meaning I fight, I fight pleasure with pleasure. You can't kill the pleasures of money, fame, acclaim, sex. You, you can't kill those pleasures with mere don't, don't, don't. Mama said don't. Pea shooter against a Sherman tank. But I'll tell you, if God comes down and gives you a glimpse of his glory and the preciousness of a close walk with Jesus, if he does that for you, and that's what you should be crying out for, then these lies of the internet, these lies of covetousness, and these lies of, of self-promotion, will lose their power by the power of a superior satisfaction. That's what that paragraph was intended to say. So let's, let's look at texts. Faith, I'm arguing, is the great worker of holiness, the great worker of, of love. Here's, here are texts that show that because Bible texts have more, more power and clearly more authority than I do. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.3 we give thanks to God always for you, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. I think those are three ways of saying the same thing from different angles, but just focus on work of faith. What does work of faith mean? It means a work, they, Paul saw, deeds being done so different from what their idolatrous deeds were, and they were coming out of faith. Faith produces them. 2 Thessalonians 1.11, to this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling, may fulfill every good resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So Paul's praying down power into the lives of believers so that resolves that they're forming will not be works, not be legalism. Resolves can be legalistic, 
You can have all kinds of screwy motives for good, mo- for good resolves. You have good resolves to read your Bible, good resolves to go to church, good resolves to keep your nose sexually clean have nothing to do with faith. He's praying for the opposite. He's praying that power would come so that these good resolves would be fulfilled as works of faith. So that as you resolve to read your Bible, you say, Lord, I can't read my Bible. My heart left to itself wants to just look at the internet or track down some news stories or read the Twitter feed or but your book is just not attractive. In this, I cannot do this. I have to have power. I have to have a miracle happen. I'm going to trust you for that. I'm going to do it in the confidence that's going to come. Oh, I've done this a thousand times in all kinds of unsavory aspects of the pastoral ministry. Stuff you got to do, you don't want to do, and you know you ought to want to do them. And you set your face like flint and right at the razor's edge there between legalism where you're trying to show off or improve your standing with God or I'm crying out like a little kid who needs help to go to the hospital when I'm playing with my own kids because Mabel has had a heart attack and I think an associate of mine should do this and you're being all kinds of horrible. And you get in the car and you go, you know your heart's not right, you're going, you're doing the right thing, and the razor's edge of why you're doing it, you're playing this out. And I have seen this happen, I can't tell you how many times, praying, God, please, please, in the elevator, going to the fourth floor, Abbott Hospital, God, please, give me what I need here so that I can love this woman out of a heart of faith, out of a heart of trust, out of a heart of resting in you, out of a heart of being satisfied in all that you are for me in Jesus. And as I open the door, I see Mabel lying there with her eyes shut. I don't know how close she is to death. And I walk over and put my hand on her, on her arm, and she opens, and like all the old people do in my church, young people never talk this, but all the old people, she says, oh, pastor, you shouldn't have come. Young people say, it's about time. <laughs> she says, you shouldn't have come. You've got more important things to do. And God has actually given me, either in the paces between the door or from the elevator or from the car, somewhere he has worked a miracle. And I say to her authentically, I know I didn't have to, Mabel, but I, I want to be here because it will complete my joy if I could in any way just pour out some hope on you that God has given me in his own glory, and, and I could extend my, my pleasures in him into your life right now and help you either recover or get ready to meet, meet Jesus. So I do believe in walking into a path of obedience even before your heart is right. There is a hypocritical way to do that. We all know what hypocrisy is. Walking in the path of obedience so others will think you're kind like the Pharisees. Or walking in there brokenhearted that your heart is not what it ought to be. Brokenhearted. And crying out, oh God, come, come. While I'm walking in the path, come, fill me with the sense of what I ought to be doing so that this deed is not an empty shell of legal compliance to 
rightness, but is a work of faith. Empowered, like this text says, empowered. Acts 26, 18. I send you to open their eyes. <coughs> Excuse me. I send you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. This is Jesus talking to Paul. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's one of the clearest phrases in the New Testament to state what I'm saying. How are we sanctified? Made holy? Brought into conformity to Jesus? By faith in Jesus. Or Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. So faith is the great worker. One or two more, and then we'll stop. Grace as future power. Grace in which we trust is not only God's disposition to save the unworthy. If it weren't that, we would have no hope, but it's more. But the power of God exerted to bless us in the future with all that we need. So a couple of illustrations of that, and then we'll save the rest for tomorrow. I love this text in 1 Corinthians 15. I just love it. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace, that's what it was, the grace of God that was with me. Now, I want you to picture this in process, all right? So here's Paul, saved, and God gives him a work to do. We just read about it in Acts 26. He gives him work to do. Once you spread the gospel all through Asia Minor, Greece, get to Rome, then I'll take you home. I want you to do this work. A lot of sleepless nights, shipwrecks, dangers, imprisonments, beatings. i got a work for you to do. I want you to go do it. And Paul says, his grace that came to me there wasn't in vain, meaning it produced work. And so I worked. I worked one day, I worked the next day, and I worked the next day, and I got up, and when they let me out of jail, I went to another city to get in prison, and I worked, and I worked, and I worked. And then he stops, steps back, says, but it was not I, but grace. Now, what I mean by future grace is that between the time of the assignment and when he wrote this, grace arrived a thousand times. Grace arrived a thousand times. This working today, that wasn't me, that was grace. This working tomorrow, that wasn't me, that was grace. This working the next day, that wasn't me, that was grace. That's what he says. So grace has to be more than the disposition to save him. Grace is the ever-arriving power so that Paul becomes a maniac for Jesus. And he knew, this is not me. In my flesh dwells no good thing. First Romans 7. That I am willing to be imprisoned is a miracle. And I have counted on this miracle every hour of my life. A couple of more examples of that grace. 2 Corinthians 9, 8, 
and God is able to make all grace abound to you. That's future, future, right? He's able to do that for you tomorrow, tonight. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So grace abounds for every good work. So where are those works coming from? They're coming from the arrival of grace tonight, the arrival of grace tomorrow. This is the power of future grace. Grace is a power. This is what we're counting on. This is what we're banking on hour by hour. You got a hard thing to do tonight, maybe tomorrow, phone call you ought to make, really ought to make, don't want to make. What do you do? Run away from the hard thing? No. You say to him, God, I can't do it. I need power. I need you. So, I'm going to start dialing now. You don't dial anymore. <laughs> Whatever this is called. <laughs> they still call it dialing, don't they? Anyway, I'm going to start dialing. And, and, and faith trusts the arrival of the grace when you need it. How many times? You, you know, to get out of the boat, for Peter to get out of the boat on the, wa- on the water, you've got you to do that. Like, what does faith do? Faith, faith does... Power! Power! It arrived. It, it arrived. It wasn't there in the boat. You can't run your car on gratitude for yesterday's gas. I have a few more things about, to say about gratitude. I love gratitude. Can't be a Christian without gratitude. But a lot of people talk about being a Christian motivated solely by gratitude. Doesn't work. Promise you. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. We're almost done. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will all the more gladly boast of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So this grace that he's promised as sufficient is coming in the, in the future. So my conclusion of, of that little unit is, therefore... Though grace was given to us before the ages began, 2 Timothy 1, and was the disposition of God that moved him to send his son to die for us, Romans 3.24, it is also a divine power promised for our entire moment-by-moment future and given for our present experience. This would be a good place to stop. So we'll pick it up here in the morning, Lord willing, and see some examples of how does it really work when it comes to being a patient person and a person who can kill lust and kill covetousness and be free from anxiety. That's where we're going to try to go. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I long so much to be more consistently trusting in your ever-arriving future grace. As I know I preach over my head here, that is, over my achievement in my wife's relation, in my children, the church, at desiring God, in the people I meet. Afterward, I see, oh, faith, faith would have done so much 
better there if I had trusted you more fully and I was anxious or I murmured. So God, I'm asking for myself and for these friends here, do this miracle of faith in future grace for the sake of our holiness and ultimately for the sake of your great glory. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.